What It Takes is brought to you by Google, leading the way toward a carbon-free future. By 2030, Google aims to operate on 24-7 carbon-free energy. That means completely eliminating carbon emissions from its electricity use, all day, every day. It's an ambitious goal, but Google is up for the challenge. Google has been on this energy journey for almost two decades, and now it's redrawing the roadmap to decarbonize electric grids and working with clean tech entrepreneurs and startups to get there. Achieving 24-7 carbon-free energy will require new technologies, new approaches to energy purchasing, and new policies. We'll tell you more later in the episode, so stay tuned. You can learn more by going to g.co forward slash carbon-free by 2030. I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our zero-carbon future a reality. In this episode, my conversation with Lynn Jurich, the co-founder and CEO of Sunrun. Sunrun was a pioneer in the early days of solar. Today, it's the biggest installer of home solar systems in America and one of the industry's biggest success stories. Sunrun also partners with utilities on using batteries and rooftop systems to create virtual power plants. In this interview, I spoke with Lynn about how she convinced homeowners and banks to invest millions during the Great Recession in a new kind of solar service, kicking off the residential solar boom. One of my all-time favorite images in our industry is Lynn in a yellow blazer ringing the opening bell the day that Sunrun went public while holding her newborn in her arms. This conversation was recorded at Powerhouse's headquarters in Oakland, California in 2018. We're named Powerhouse, and it is so fitting, Lynn, to have you here because I think when people think of powerhouses in the industry, they think of you. So we are so excited to get to know who is behind that powerhouse. So starting way back to childhood, tell us a little bit about where you were born, what you were like, what did your parents do? Yeah, so I, you know, my my childhood was very influential, I would say, on a couple dimensions. First, uh, I grew up in Tacoma, Washington, in the woods. And, uh, and near a fabulous public park. And my mother really instilled in me at a very young age that, hey, nature has this rhythm that can just slow you down. Um, because I was, unsurprisingly, a very, you know, driven child. Um, <laughs> um, like I'm sure many entrepreneurs, but, uh, but I found myself um, not really pushed into things from my parents. My parents, I had a healthy kind of upper middle class background. My father was a dentist. My mother worked for the, the government for Social Security Administration. And, um, but I very quickly found myself in second grade with like, you know, 10 extracurricular activities and, and pretty self-imposed. And so very much my mother was, okay, like, let's, you know, get out into the world, get out into nature, calm down, calm down, calm down. Um, but I loved it. I loved, um, I loved, I had so many different curiosities. I loved meeting new people and learning new things. And um, the other thing that was very formative for me was sports. I was uh, a really competitive athlete. I probably... After after elementary school to junior high school, I probably spent six to eight hours a night playing sports because I joined, you know, sort of the three year round um, teams in basketball, volleyball, um, and tennis. 
and uh, played those through col- through high school and was recruited for college, although I decided not to pursue it. Um, but sports was also very formative for me in terms of the teamwork, the competition, uh, and really served me well, I think, in my professional career. And if I understand correctly, you were recruited for both volleyball and basketball by Harvard. Is that right? Um, uh, yes. <laughs> but you decided to go to Stanford and, and not pursue sports in college, but to be a full-time student. Tell us about that decision. True, true. Uh, I did. I, you know, I was, I was burnt out in high school, I would say. You know, I, I honestly, you know, I, and I look at kids today and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's so much worse than I had it. And so I fear for my, I have a three-year-old daughter and a two-month-old uh, son. Now, um, I fear for them because I was already burned out in, you know, high school and I can only imagine. And, um, and so I think I was feeling a little bit of that. And my, my life was geared so much around athletics. I would say that people probably in high school, you know, sort of knew I was smart, but that wasn't really my identity. And, um, were you a closeted nerd? Because I know for a lot of us in high school, you know, even if we got straight A's, we wouldn't tell people because being nerdy wasn't cool the way it is now. Yeah, you know, it, that is true. I No, I didn't really hide it, but... Um, <laughs> people just didn't know it yeah. as much as they knew you as an athlete. Exactly, exactly. And... Um, so Stanford, so so just when I toured the different campuses, I was just like blown away by the optimism and the weather. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh. And like the students, they were so happy. I was like, get me some of this, you know? So it became very clear once I was on campus that I wanted to be there. Mm-hmm. What'd you decide to study? I I started off as a math major. So I think one of the, one of the, um, and I ended up with a degree in science, technology, and society, which was an interdisciplinary degree, and with a focus in math. And uh, but but again, you know, some of the theme and how I've grown over the years that I'm sure will come out of the interview is I was just, you know, I was just I was just very competitive, and I also was very aware of the male female dynamic in a way. And you know, I grew up in a pretty traditional household. My mother dropped out of college to support my dad's dental school, even though, you know, she had better grades, you know, it's sort of a common story. Um, and I, you know, and so, so I was just hyper aware of that. And, and so I always felt as a child that I wanted to prove that women could do it as just as good as, as men can do it. And so I think part of that was what drove my entry into math. It was one of the degrees where there were fewer women. Um, and so really, really that drew me to it. Not that it was the, the right thing to do in retrospect, but, um, but then I evolved and found my way into this really interesting interdisciplinary degree, which really helped shape why I'm so interested in in solar and in energy in general, because it was really about studying how technology can change societal structures. And I've always been really drawn to how do you really do something generational, something that, you know, you're going to, something that you can do for 50 years that's just going to totally, completely change the world and shift, you know, not just be a great economic opportunity, but just shift our society for better. I've always been attracted to that. And I'm a, I'm a real student of that. I read a lot. I read a lot about history. And um, that's given me some confidence in the energy industry to, like, stay tough because we're on the right side of history. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that truly has been has been helpful because in the short term, as we've seen, and with the intro, I think that's come up quite a bit that it can feel like, you know, this industry is a roller coaster. And I kind of hate that solar coaster term really in general, because I mean, we got to have more confidence as an industry. If I could leave us with like one thing to go out there collectively, it's like, 
guys, we're doing some great stuff. Like, let's have some confidence. We're, we're doing, you know, the, the economics work. Um, yeah, so, so during that time, I started working for a professor and studying um, how technology was changing the workforce. So again, I was like very interested in this intersection of technology and, and, and societal structures. And um, this was when, this is in the first tech boom. So I was at, I started at Stanford in 98. So it was during the 99, 2000 kind of time period. And so I got really exposed to interviewing entrepreneurs and was doing a lot of research on, um, on uh, distributed workforce. So I also have this theme of distributed, you know, moving away from centralized to distributed uh, in my life. And, um, and then really started to get intrigued by venture capital and the ability to be in a career where you could talk and see so many different ideas. And so I pursued that as my job out of undergrad. And um, in 2002, I graduated. It was kind of a tough market. Um, and I uh, was fortunate that I got a job as a private equity associate. Um, which involved both. It was it was an interesting job because it had um, two aspects to it. Um, one aspect was the traditional kind of financial analyst aspect, where you would uh, interview companies, you know, model their financial statements, make investment recommendations. Um, but the other part of it was cold calling, you know, and sourcing investments. And so. Um, you know, we literally were on kind of a monthly quota, which was like, you will talk to a couple hundred CEOs and get them on the phone and have a conversation every single month. And um, that was a very unnatural job for me to take, you know, and, and it's, I, I am very introverted by nature. I really, you know, sort of rejuvenate being alone. I love to read. I love to, um, I love to think. I love to contemplate. Um, so I really wanted to push myself into that job because I knew it would be uncomfortable for me. Um, and, you know, getting back to some of the themes in the world now about the, the, you know, the feminine and the masculine. I mean, it was interesting, too, that I was the only female of, you know, probably 50 professionals and the youngest. Um, so it was kind of an interesting dynamic. Um, but what I learned from that job, I took so many things away from it, but the the most important was just that you can, you know, it might be so uncomfortable to do these things and just pick up the phone and get hung up on and ask all these personal questions. I mean, our job was to get these CEOs on the phone and pretty much immediately ask them how much money their company made. You know, like, so it's like, not only are you cold calling, but you're like, at, you're like getting into it as fast as possible. Um, and so I just realized like, okay, these are human beings. Um, it's surprising what you can get when you ask. It's like pretty an amazing <laughs> lesson if you're just not afraid to ask yeah. what you can get. And and I learned how to be scrappy and sort of hustle and you know and you know I remember there was a time where I really was trying to I really liked this company and I was trying to get to the CEO and you would learn all these tricks like make friends with their assistant or you know try to find when he's taking a cross country flight and maybe if you're really good friends with the assistant you can get in the seat next to the you know next to them so you kind of you really learn how to be scrappy um, and, uh, and, and so that was that, that job in many, in many senses, like really gave me the confidence to deal with kind of all the rejection and all the pressure, um, that it takes to be an entrepreneur. And, um, also I know we'll get into some of the fundraising stuff too, but it gave me comfort with operating in a venture capital environment. You know, I, I understood the money side, how to pitch a opportunity, how investors think. And so I think it gave me a little bit of a jump start in terms of um, fundraising when we started Sunrun. 
And then what made you leave that and go to business school? Um, That was the typical path. So it was one of these kind of classic jobs where you would do the three years and then go to, um, you know, Stanford or Harvard and then go back and, you know, be, uh, uh, have your career in investing. And, um, and I was, I was really fortunate that they had, um, I was the, the first person that they offered a full-time job upon return and to pay for my business school. So, um, so it was really kind of hard to turn that down. So, so you know, you, we all know how expensive student loans are. Um, hopefully, most of us are all through paying those ones off. Um, but the, uh, the you know, I, I was at Stanford and I was approached by a classmate of mine who is my co-founder now, Ed Fenster. And he had a friend from high school, Nat Kramer, who those of you guys who have been in the industry may know him. He, he worked at, um, moved on and worked at CPF after he was, a, he founded Sunrun with us. And he was Ed's friend from, from high school. Um, I think Ed was best man in his wedding. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't know him very well, but I was a close friend of Ed's, and Nat had been in the military and had come home from service in Afghanistan and really had a passion for, okay, we are fighting over natural resources, and like that is where the world is going to go, and I would love to do something to help combat that. And so solar started to look like it was getting cost-effective, and um, and Ed, who... Uh, is is just brilliant. You know, he is our he is our, you know, uh he, he's he's amazing at structured finance and is a great investor as well. And we really struck up a mutual friendship and we're kind of thinking of maybe we should try to do something together. But when this solar opportunity presented itself, I was ready for it because I had you know, I'm, I'm like, love clean air. I'm a big environmentalist. It was like the big kind of scale problem that I wanted to solve. It was a, the kind of generational problem that I wanted to solve in my life. And um, and we, you know, we're somewhat studious in, in digging through the forecast, you know, how cost effective, how fast could it be? You know, I remember I used my cold calling skills and I pulled up the Stanford alumni database and called every single person in there from the energy industry to just get advice um, and How did that go? They about it. What they think? What they say? <laughs> they were all like, "Oh, you cute little girl," you know, like you don't know what you're getting yourself into. Like, I mean, I, I literally, um, I, I remember people saying, "Oh, there are." We, we, I think we at that point had decided we were going to try to sell solar as a service, um, and and that was going to be our business model because we what we had seen at that time was, um, and in our experience as venture capitalists, everybody was investing in the hardware. And so there was all this huge investment wave that went in to make the technology cheaper. But there were very few ideas about what are the business models that you're going to employ to actually get this up on the roof. And that is where, you know, our expertise lies and where I still see Sunrun's expertise lie. And, and you know, and, the, and fast forward to these other business models that we're exploring, I think that is that is the core of what we're really good at is how do we put all the pieces together to create value for everybody, you know, create value for the customer, create value for the utility grid, create value for our shareholders, you know, what are the business models? And so, you know, we, so I remember calling through this list of um, energy alums and, you know, saying we're going to deliver solar as a service. It seems ripe for um, some financial innovation and people saying, oh, there's a lot of sophisticated people working on this problem, so you might not want to touch it. I mean, I, I do remember someone directly saying that to me. 
Um, someone at P- someone at PG&E actually, um, <laughs> and then fast forward three years later, we raise a hundred million dollars from PG&E. So, um, so yeah, that's that's how those calls went. They they were not supportive. I will tell you. Mm-hmm. So so very much, you know, and and you'll you know everybody said it won't work. Or people are too sophisticated. You don't have the right background for it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So we, you know, we took that as a challenge. We took it as an input. We said, okay, that's interesting. We'll reflect on that. But let's, you know, make our own assessment of this market and this opportunity. And uh, and so we just went for it. And I was, you know, lucky that in my personal situation, I had um, just gotten married. So I think we... This is, uh, I should remember when I got married, February of 2007. Um, and a week later, we pretty much started the company. So I still have not really a week taken after a your wedding. Yeah. <laughs> so my husband and I were going to get around to that, you know, soon, <laughs> soon. But my husband was very supportive um, as well. We, you know, we both um, had talked he was a, he was in the finance community as well he was in venture capital I actually met him at work so full disclosure <laughs> uh, we were peers um, um, uh, and uh, and so we had always talked about what do we want to do with our lives together and you know he's I'm so lucky because he's like my deep deep soulmate in like everything and all of my interests and what we want to create for the world and you know it, and I've been hugely fortunate I couldn't be here, you know, without his support, certainly. And um, so we had talked about it together and we both wanted to be entrepreneurs. And, um, and so and he was a, he was in business school at, at Harvard at the time while I was at Stanford. So we were living separate. And um, so he was also kind of looking around at different ideas. And when this idea presented itself, um, he was like, oh, this is the perfect job for you. He was like, you got to go for it and was really supportive. And then, you know, s- kind of scrapped his pursuit of an entrepreneurial um, uh, opportunity at that point and then helped support us. Cause you know, when you get started, you put your money in, you don't pay yourself for a long time. It's pretty grueling um, for years. Um, and, uh, and then fortunately as Sunrun got to be uh, successful, he got to, Co-found a company, so tell us came about, full circle. Tell us about the the founder. So you mentioned Ed and Nat, mm-hmm. and uh, and eventually Nat left to join CPF Clean Power Finance. So tell us about that, the founding it with Ed, and then what happened when Nat left, and how was that? Yeah, I you know, so the three of us were really complementary in terms of our skill set. So you know, Ed was very strong on the structured finance side. Um, you know, I was kind of the strategist around how do you actually set up this business model to work with all the different parties. And Nat was very, you know, his military background is very like operational, you know, and so it was quite complimentary. And, um, and, uh, and so we spent, you know, in those early days, how do we spend our time? So Ed was out fundraising for the project finance. I was out fundraising for the venture capital I was out selling the customers and Nat was helping us, you know, build the metering system and the, you know, billing systems and, you know, some of the systems. So it's sort of, we checked, we checked all the boxes and it's been, is a fantastic partnership. And, you know, Ed and I 
to this day are still side by side, um, you know, every day, 11 years later, he's my, he's my work husband. I call him my work <laughs> husband. Although we were in a meeting the other day and he started to pull out the chair and I thought he was pulling it out for me, but it was just for himself. I was like, come on, you're supposed to be my work husband. Um, you said the first few years are pretty grueling as far as, you know, not paying yourself or not a lot. What was that? Were you paying yourselves? Like at what point did you start? Oh, man, I blocked out so many of those first years. Um, <laughs> the first nine years were grueling. <laughs> so, we're, so, so we're 11 years in, okay? It's like never been better. It's never been better. It actually makes a, <laughs> makes a huge difference when you turn cash flow positive. So that is a big weight off of our shoulders. We're really thrilled. We were, you know, turned cash flow positive in 2017. So it's nice to have, you know, those quarters, you know, stringing up. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but, but for the, you know, for the early years, I mean, so here's what happened. We started the company in 2007. So this was, the market was booming. There was the, you know, finance available, the debt finance available for anybody. I mean, we're like, oh, we could crush this. You know, we had term sheets from everybody then. So, so then the question is, can you actually get enough residential homes together to be a big enough pool for these investors to be interested? Because they really wanted, for them to do the work, they wanted to deploy $40 million at a time. So you have this real chicken and an egg problem, which is how do you prove that residential customers will actually sign these 20-year contracts? Every time you, the business model is to have it free for the homeowner. So you're paying $60,000, you know, it was much more expensive back then, $60,000 for a system. You're, we're writing that check. The homeowner is signing a 20-year contract, but then we have to get enough of those pulled together to then go out and raise the capital. So we had, we had funded the business ourselves. We had then raised $3 million from people that we worked for. So then it starts to get very real friends and family. You know, we're, you know again, we're not paying ourselves. It's like these people we, you, you, know, you worked for that you're asking money for. And then the market crashes. So we had been... Uh, and, and, and right before the market crash, we had then raised $9 million of venture capital. So we were pretty much total all in about $12 million. Was that $3 million? Was that a seed round? Was that? Angel, yeah. Wow. A seed round. A convertible round. Yeah. Into the A. Um, and, and so then the market totally crashed. Every single term sheet like went away. And we're spending through all of this money. And so $12 million might seem like a lot. But when you're buying projects at $60,000 at a time, it is not a lot. Meanwhile, we're trying to convince homeowners that, oh, hey, sign up with us for 20 years. You know, we're just this like startup. I mean, this is like me selling at, at the farmer's market. I mean, literally, I was at this BART station putting flyers on people's cars. Like I was, I spent the first two years, I mean, I went from this venture capital job where I was like flying around on private planes to I spent every Saturday and Sunday at like the Yolo County Fair. I mean, this is true. Um, and and just trying to convince homeowners to, you know, sign, sign up. So, so... Lehman Brothers crashes. The whole market crashes. We've been sp- we're spending through all this equity capital. We're going to totally run out of it. And it's not a small amount of money, $12 million. This is back in 2007. So this is, you know, this, this is real money. Um, and then, so, I mean, that was the, the most excruciating time, I think, of any of our lives. It was just, I mean, personal tragedies aside, um, which obviously are more important. But um, it was like every night. 
the amount of intense pressure that you feel because you've gone out to convince all these homeowners to sign up with you for 20 years. You've taken money from your friends and family. You know, your husband gave up what he wanted to do to help, you know, support you. Um, you and, and day by day, every bank that had lined up to give us capital was like, like, I just lost my job. Like, I mean, this was like the, this is the recession. And then we just finally got in and got us bank to support us. And we still owe them, you know, so much they've made money on with us. So it was a good deal for them too. But, um, we raised $40 million and, uh, and, and it really helped the business in a way that we hit that, that tough cycle because, you know, it was very hard for anybody else to raise behind us. So we in Solar City kind of had gotten going at the same time. And, um, that's another funny story I'll tell in a second, but, but then, so after we, did that, then the market was kind of shut for a little bit, which I think did help us build some of the operating infrastructure and the foundation to help us, you know, take some of the market share. What It Takes is supported by Google, leading the way to a carbon-free future. In 2007, Google was the first major company to be carbon neutral. Ten years later, it became the first company of its size to match 100% of yearly electricity use with renewables. Every step towards decarbonization is a step in the right direction. But to stop the worst impacts of climate change, we'll need to do more than offset and reduce emissions. We need to eliminate them. That's why Google plans to be the first company to source carbon-free energy around the clock everywhere it operates by 2030. In the process, they'll need to piece together the solutions you hear about on this podcast. Machine learning, batteries, cheap, clean energy, and human ingenuity on a global scale. The next decade holds a lot of opportunities for new technologies, new approaches to energy purchasing, and new policies. Google is partnering with all kinds of energy innovators to make the future carbon-free. If you want to get inspired by the challenge, or if your business can help Google get to 24-7 carbon-free by 2030, visit g.co forward slash carbon-free by 2030. Before the 40 million came in, were you thinking you were going to have to close the doors? Oh, yeah. I mean, we had, we, I mean, we had a board meeting where I think that was going to be the conclusion, but we were effective in kind of selling through it. So, you know, again, you know, the, one of the points I wanted to make earlier, I do think that we, we ought to zoom out as an industry to be realistic about like all the change that we're driving. This is just a trillion dollar entrenched industry that it's going to take a little while to change. And, and, you know, so, so sometimes when I see really creative, innovative things happen and like New York Rev is an example, you know, I think a lot of people are like disappointed. Why isn't it going faster? And it's like, guys, this is like, this is a big deal, you know, like give it a little bit of time. Like we're going to, we're going to get there. It takes, it takes, it's going to take a while to change these institutions. And once we do, it'll start happening much faster than we think, but we have to be somewhat realistic. And I think, you know, if you look at any overarching trend, whether it's how fast costs are coming down, whether it's batteries getting more cost effective, um, you know, whether it's utilities now starting to work with us to figure out how to have non-wire alternatives and alternatives, you know, the virtual power plants and the other business models, this stuff would have been unimaginable a couple of years ago. And, you know, and so I'm very optimistic. Was that the hardest time in the life cycle of the company when when you were thinking at that board meeting that the outcome would be to shut it down? Or were there other times as you continued to grow and scale mm-hmm. that were equally hard? 
Yeah, there are others. <laughs> I mean, you know, when we when we started the business, we thought, okay, we can, you know, like every other business plan, you know, up and to the right, you only need one round and then you're cash flow positive. And, um, and then, you know, $350 million of venture capital later, um, you know, so, so yeah, there's a lot of things that didn't totally go the way that we had planned. Um, being on the, you know, being on the backside of a a lot of that though is like, is satisfying. You're like, okay, that's an entry barrier in the business. You know, we went through, and, and so Ed and I, many times through the company's history would look at each other and just say, we just wouldn't wish this business on our worst enemy. <laughs> I mean, like that is a comment we have made more than once. Yeah. Um, but we're on the backside of that now, so we can say we're really glad we did it. <laughs> um, but in all seriousness, I mean, back to the opening, it's the the these businesses, and I think it's when I and when I say these businesses, I mean residential solar, and particularly when you when you're trying to build an integrated, you know, financing and developer residential solar company is a very hard business to run, and I think that's why you've seen that not very many companies have been successful at it. But I fundamentally believe that this first two hundred thousand customers that we've acquired, this is the hardest. And so the next million, the next five million, that will that will happen, and that will be easier. What was it like raising venture capital? You know, that's my comfort zone in a way because that's how that's how I was um that's that was my how I was trained. That was my first job. So, um we were we've been fairly fortunate in that um we were able to raise we you know, we raised four rounds, five rounds of private equity before we went public. And um you know, that was they weren't easy. I mean, you had to pound the pavement and um but but that was not a huge, one of the top challenges, mm-hmm, I would mm-hmm, say. Mm-hmm. Um, and tell us about the decision to IPO. Yeah, so the IPO we did August 2015, we needed capital. Uh, and we believed that there would be some advantages to just being more high profile, both from um, primarily with our project finance investors. You know, there's just like an extra layer of scrutiny that you go through and reporting and visibility that helps people get comfortable with you. Um, Because our financial statements can read a little complex, um, you know, sometimes, you know, our CFO is constantly on the phone trying to explain to people how to read through our financial statements and like, no, 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 we're actually generating cash flow. Here you, right here, like here it is. You know, we're a good credit, I promise. Um, and so there's some real benefits to getting public with that, and then plus the capital raise. And so that was, you know, always in the in the plans. And you know, certainly when you take venture capital, part of that deal is you have to get them an exit. And we certainly had no interest in selling the company. We think that you know this is this should be a fifty billion dollar company. I mean, that's, you know, that's our, our, our plan. So we had no interest in selling it at that point. Um, and so public was the natural way to go. Yeah. One of my all time favorite photos in the industry is at the IPO where you have a bunch of dudes behind you all wearing gray blazers and then you're in this bright yellow blazer and you're holding your baby. Tell us about that decision. Oh yeah. Thank you. That was a a special moment. That was probably one of the hard times. Um, I would put that up there. Um, So I still, I remember, you know, my husband and I always wanted to have a family and we had, you know, waited for a long time. We were married for nine years. And, um, and then we were fortunate to get pregnant and 
then I looked at the timing and I was like, wait, this is exactly when we needed to do our IPO. <laughs> and I remember being so nervous to tell the board, you know, I still, I remember, I think I waited. My friends were making, make fun of me so that I'm like that there was some movie like knocked up or something where she doesn't tell anybody until she's nine months pregnant. I think like that was me. Um, and probably everybody knew, um, um, I'm looking at all the Sunrun people in the audience. I don't know. Um, so, so I just, it, the timing was, looked like it was going to coincide. And, um, and, you know, I am experienced enough in these markets and market timing to understand when the market is open, the market is open and it can close in the matter of just a day. That is a lesson that we have learned time and time again is like, when you have a deal on the table, you close it. It is, you never know if the next day is September 11, you know, God forbid something happens, you close the deal when you have the, when you have the time, when the, when the window's open. And, um, and so it just so happened that the right time to get public was right after I had the baby. Mm -hmm. So I returned home from the hospital, put on my headset, you know, I was nursing the baby on back to work, day home from the hospital and, um, and uh, putting together the roadshow presentation. And then we started the roadshow, I think, probably four or five weeks after the baby was born. Um, and uh, so I wanted to nurse the baby, so I brought the baby with us. And I brought my mom, too, because she was like, you got to make sure the baby's taken care of, too. I mean, that's priority number one. And so, you know, I remember I was, before we were about to go out on the road, I was having dinner with another CEO friend who had taken his company public. And he was like, the, I, the road show is the most exhausting thing you'll ever do. I, like, can barely make it. And I'm like, meanwhile, I'm like, doing all the meetings, all the city tours, and feeding in the middle of the night, okay? So, um, <laughs> so it's, it's sort of one of those things where, in retrospect, especially now that I'm having the second one, I'm a little bit older, too, so maybe I'm more tired, but, like, in retrospect, you're, it's like, how did I do that? But in the moment, it felt totally doable. And and it's like we do have some amazing photos and a cool memory and and for my mother and I too it was really special mm-hmm. for my mom to be there. It's awesome. What has changed about your leadership as the company has scaled? Oh, so much. Well, um, you know, I started the company at age twenty-seven, and I had never worked at a company, so I did not have a lot of role models. I had you know the sort of the private equity role models where if you didn't format something exactly right, it would get thrown in your face. Like, that's kind of how I was trained. <laughs> um, so I did not have a lot of role models necessarily but um, for how to operate a company. So it was very self-taught and through friends and mentors. And, you know, I think the there's been a ton that's changed, but the thing that stands out for me the most is getting back to just who I am as a person. I'm just very, you know, competitive and driven and... Um, And I like outcomes. I like to win. I like outcomes. I like to measure. I like to see, you know. And and so I think, and and in our business, it feels so important and it feels like it's life or death every single day. And so you can just get into this like driving to outcomes mentality. 
And what I've really evolved more to is that is not a fun way to operate, nor the most effective way to operate. And so I've really learned how both personally and, you know, how I manage the team to try to make it more enjoyable along the way. You know, it doesn't diminish the focus on the outcomes, but I like it to be light, to be a little playful, to enjoy the process a little bit. And um, that has come through a lot of experimentation with different styles, but mostly through just work on myself, you know, really deep kind of reflection, meditation work, um, a lot of reading of philosophy, which is one of my favorite things to do. And I've just changed as a person. I've just gone on a much more spiritual journey and I've tried to bring that, incorporate that into the company, and I, and I, and I think back. I, I like I. I am thankful that the company was so stressful because I don't know that I would have pushed myself into that. I don't know that that's something that I would have discovered. But at some point in time, I, I remember it was about 2013 when the company wasn't growing quite as well. Solar City had just gotten public. Um, we were the market share leader. They took over the market share leader at that point in time, and it was. Um, you know, we're just going through some of these growing pains of hitting, you know, moving from 200 people to bigger scale. And it was a very hard time. And I had some, a few personal things happening as well. Um, and it was, it was a horrible time. And I almost had to go on this almost spiritual quest to be, to serve, to, to have survived in my role. Um, and so I'm really grateful for that because I don't know that I would have gotten there and my life feels much more expansive now. It feels much richer. Did you intentionally have to, was it intentional to do that quest or was it just something that you, oh yeah. 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 It was like, I am going to (laughs) explode into little pieces. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. What did the quest and I, like? and I knew I wouldn't be effective in my role. And so that's another thing I've always looked to myself. It, it wasn't obvious to me. I never set out in my life saying I would like to be a CEO. That was never a goal. I would have always, I would have fancied myself more a behind the scenes kind of person. Like I was, when I was a kid, I was like, okay, I was sort of, my directions where I'd love to be, you know, chief of staff to a president. You know, I want to know a lot and be, but be behind the scenes. I, I thought for a while I wanted to be uh, in academia. I thought I would... I uh, wanted to be like president of Stanford or something like that. Um, but CEO was never on my list. And so, and Ed was the CEO originally. And so we we switched roles, you know, through the company's history. Um, because we were so young, we didn't know. And so we just kind of figured out what we were good at. And, and, and so that, at that point in time, I believe I had to decide, is this something I want to commit to and become a better leader so that I can be in this role? Or is it time for me to step aside and have someone else, you know, operate and run the company? Mm-hmm. And um, and so obviously made the choice I made. <laughs> Speaking of pivots, one of the pivots that Sunrun has made is, you know, initially not at all engaging with utilities and in fact being pretty adversarial with utilities. And now this partnership with National Grid. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that pivot and the evolution of the company. It's interesting because... You know, going back to my studies of how technology changes industries and just, you know, watching these patterns happen, the the pattern when you disrupt anything is fairly typical, which is like the incumbents fight you 
and fight you and fight you and fight you and fight you. And then at some point, there's some forward-thinking ones that want to join. They're like, oh, let's maybe we should get with the program. We're going to like take a little bit of risk here and get with the program. And then eventually, everyone kind of comes on board. And so I think part of it was just we're kind of mirroring that that arc that happens. In, and, and so I think that um, you know we're really fortunate that National Grid is one of these um, incumbents that sees that this is the future. I mean, I think that um, I think that it is most people. There's a lot of lip service given to. Okay, the world is moving cleaner. Energy industry is moving cleaner. Is moving decentralized. It's moving digitized. There's a lot of people who use that line, but not a lot of people who are like standing, you know, behind that. And National Grid, I think, is one that really believes in that strategy and. And I think part of maybe the evolution of the company is similar in my own personal evolution, which has come to this place where let's operate from a place of abundance. You know, let's operate from a place of win-win. Let's not be in this place of fear and limited resources and get me my slice of the pie and I'm going to take yours and you're going to take mine. Let's grow it. And it's just such a much better way to solve problems, a more effective way to solve problems. And that's where we are as a company. That's our mindset right now is that we're incredibly optimistic. I mean, if you look out at the at the industry, um, there's $50 billion we'll spend on utility infrastructure every year. That's a huge market, $50 billion. We can do some of that so much more cost-effectively, giving people what they want, which is the rooftop solar and the battery. And so how do we figure that out? And how do we, and that's where I think Sunrun comes in, getting back to what are we really good at as a business is that that business model innovation. How do we create value for all the parties? Um, you know, that's how the company was born. Create value for the financiers, create value for our channel partners, create value for our shareholders, create value for the customer. So we, we can create value for everybody. We just have to be creative and in a place where we're not so fearful and entrenched because you don't get good outcomes that mm. way. Um, last question before we move into our high voltage round. Where is Sunrun today? Where will you be in five years? And what's the future of energy look like? <laughs> Three-part question. Yeah, no, I love it. Um, well, today we're, we're thrilled with you know, what we've built over the last decade. So we, uh, we're the market leader in residential solar. We're, you know, in charge of our future. We're cash flow positive. We have happy customers. Happy um, CEO. We have a happy CEO. We have a happy co-founder. You know, Ed, Ed, Ed would represent happiness as well. Um, and, and so we like our market position a lot. And, but we also feel a lot of responsibility to, um, use that position to advance what we believe in, which is how do we move ourselves to 100% renewables faster, as fast as we possibly can. And so what I'm so excited about about the next decade is I really think it will be this time for the consumer. The consumers, homeowners, they want 100% renewable energy. I don't know if people saw the recent EEI research that was out, but um, the majority of Americans want 100% renewable so think about that. In our world right now, there's no majority of anybody who wants anything. It's like 51, 49 on every issue. This is an issue where the majority of Americans are behind it. And even when they ask the question, would you pay 30% more on your, was it 30%? I think 30% more on your electric bill to have us move to 100% renewable, 51% said yes. That is phenomenal. And people people want to do something. And this is, could be a rallying 
um, cry for us, like such a divided country. And I think people are also, they, they really feel like their institutions have let, have left them, let them down. I mean, we, I think many of us feel like the government has let, let us down. Some of our bigger businesses have let us down. So it's time, like we now, we have this product where consumers can stand up and say, Hey, like I want better energy. I want cleaner energy. I want to be in control of it. I want a battery. And then we figure out, and then we drive change that way. Because then the votes come with it, and then you drive some of the like political change that you need. So I really think that you know empowering our customers and offering making this solution as simple as possible for them is going to help us drive the change. And then and then in behind the scenes, we're going to be innovating the business models to figure out how do you leverage those. Um, those rooftop solar systems. How do you use the battery to aggregate that to reduce the cost for the entire system? You know, and that's that's our vision because our business will only work if we, meaning distributed energy, if we reduce the cost for the entire system long term. That's like how it has to be. So we're solving that problem and solving it for the individual customer. So I think that's where we'll be. And if you just, you know, from a financial standpoint, since I think this is a business audience, the the top twenty utilities have a market cap of five hundred billion dollars. This is as big of an industry as it gets. So there's so much economic value to be had, too, to solve this problem. It's like a win-win on so many dimensions. So I want to be in that rank of millions of customers, billions of market cap, um, you know, saving money for, for everybody across the country. Awesome. We're going to move into our high-voltage round. Quick questions, quick answers. I cannot wait to hear your answer to this first question. Uh-oh. The question is... Too tired for this. Did I mention that? <laughs> first question is, if you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? Lynn, what animal are you? <sighs> Definitely some sort of a bird. I'm a, I'm a big fan of birds. Uh, so, like, my initial instinct says, like, owl... You know, maybe like a little wise, a little, but you know, still could be a hunter. Um, but but I also but I also like the I also like the you know the phoenix. You know, like take us from the ashes to the hundred percent renewable future. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> that embarrasses me to answer that question. By the way, <laughs> that's a great answer. Um, if you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? Something else at scale dealing with physical infrastructure, because I am so passionate about, I mean, one part of my story that I left out was just, I did have a stint of working in China, and it was when Shanghai was really booming, and there was just cranes everywhere, and you just, the, the, uh, just the amount of waste we put out there in the world is just like, it's so disheartening. So it's like, I know there's a better way to fuel our economic growth more in a more efficient way. So it'd be something like that and or dealing with packaging because there's the amount of Amazon boxes that come around that like cannot, <laughs> like it's torture, isn't it? But it's so convenient with that one click button. <laughs> I understand. Uh, other, than yourself, other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? My person, well, business ed. For sure, you know we've been partners all along the way, um, and personally, my mom and my husband—I got to give them a tie. <laughs> I have to see them both tonight, so <laughs> <laughs> this doesn't air for a couple weeks. Okay, okay, good. <laughs> um, when have you failed? Every day. Um, 
No, I love, I actually really do love failing now and I've changed my, my mind around it. And, and my morning, my morning meditation mantra is all circumstances and people are my allies. And, and that has like freed me so much because like when I mess something up, when I fail in like, I, you know, I fail daily in sort of personal relationships and like guidance and, you know, so these things happen. And then typically like back in the old Lynn, you'd be frustrated. You're like, why is this person not getting it? You know, and the new, my new self really gets kind of curious about that failure. And so it's almost like you've distanced yourself from it a little bit. It's not personal. You're just going to like find a way to turn it into a learning experience. And that's been hugely freeing for me. I think, you know, philosophers say that it's like the freedom is like turn subject into object. It's like, that's how you avoid suffering. Hmm. Is there something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? Oh, yeah. (laughs) That outcomes only mattered. (laughs) When are you your best self? When I have slept, exercised, and meditated. (laughs) It's a good combo. What is your worst trait? I'm so impatient. (laughs) I can relate. (laughs) When's the last time you were scared? I'm always scared. I mean, I think that, I think, I think, you know, getting back to my view too in the world, I feel like we would just be so much more effective if we could just acknowledge that we're scared. Like if, if I could be sitting across from this utility executive, we could both be like, oh, this is a little bit scary. This is a little bit of a scary problem. You have all these shareholders, you have all this incumbent infrastructure, you know, we're, I'm scared because, you know, for a lot of reasons, but like, but let's acknowledge the scare. Let's acknowledge that we're scared first so that we can connect as like humans and acknowledge that emotion. And then we can start to solve the problem. Of these 25,000 people who will hear this podcast, if you had just one person listening, who would you want it to be? Fast forward a few years, my daughter. Oh, sweet. (laughs) Uh, Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because... Market's too small. Success is... Non-attachment. If I could have done one thing differently, I would have. I, all circumstances and people are my allies. <laughs> <laughs> if the world knew me for one thing, it would be? Sunrun, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and to close it out? Probably the mother of my daughter because she's, she's going to be something. <laughs> Um, actually two more. One is I'm most proud of family. And then last question to build a successful startup. What it takes is endurance (laughs) with that. Please join me in a big round of applause for Linda. You can listen to all our What It Takes interviews since 2017 right here and join us for new stories of founders who are building a carbon-free future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. We're launching new episodes monthly throughout 2021. Subscribe everywhere you get your podcasts. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse in partnership with Postscript Audio. 
Powerhouse partners with leading corporations and investors to help them lead the next century of clean technology innovation. Our fund, Powerhouse Ventures, invests in founding teams, building innovative software to rapidly transform our global energy and mobility systems. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund. That's powerhouse.fund. Our executive producer is Stephen Lacey. Our producers are Jamie Kaiser, Rye Story Fisher, and Emma McDonough. Sean Marquand mixed the episodes and composed our music. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes.